Thanks so much, Sarah. And uh, geez, we're really lucky to have someone with Claire's background and experience on this webinar. So as Sarah mentioned, today is part two of four of the psychosocial risk series, which has been a really interesting topic to, turn, uh, to talk about. And there's a lot of people at the moment thinking, well, what do we do in this space, which is why we're here today. As Sarah mentioned, I'm Terry Swanton, Director of FIFO Consulting, and we are really lucky to have uh, Claire with us today. So today we're gonna to be discussing the really important topic of change management. Um, however, it's often the overlooked topic um, in a lot of organizations. So uh, just a reminder before we kick off that these sessions are designed to be short and sharp. So there'll be 30 minutes and we have got some time at the side for uh, questions and answers with Claire as well. So just a reminder, this is a four part series. So the first one was last week with Mark and Beck from FIFO, which looks at psychosocial factors. We've got change management today with Claire. Uh, on the 9th of November, I believe it is, we've got opening up the conversation with Gotcha for Life, which is going to be a really interesting conversation with uh, Vicky Warland. And then we're going to be finishing off with another really interesting one is HR versus um, WHS and where the roles and responsibilities lie in this uh, context. So that will be a really interesting one. So what I'll do now is I'll hand over to Claire who can give you an introduction to herself and Levant. Thank you, Terry. Thank you, everyone, for having me. So just a little bit about Levant Consulting. So we focus on the people elements of significant change. So what does that mean? That means when a large Australian organisation is going through change, be it a restructure, be it the implementation of a technology system, be it a relocation of people, a merge, an acquisition, many different things, we can help make sure people embed, adopt and sustain that change. We are, um, we established in Melbourne 10 years ago, we've just turned 10 and we're already, we're also in Sydney and we've just started an office in Canberra. So just, I'm just going to hand over to Terry to talk about some benchmark results and then we're going to do a poll. Thanks, Claire. Sounds like you guys do some really interesting work. So um, what's really interesting is looking at the benchmark data from the Health and Safety Index, change management was the second lowest of the eight levers, which sit under the health and wellbeing aspect, as we can see there. And what's interesting is that the ISO standard actually calls out change management, but it's often overlooked or not taken seriously enough by organisations. Um, and we're finding that through doing our index across organisations and using this benchmark data. What we have found, though, is that organisations that plan for and invest in change, you know, such as using a specialist like Claire, uh, they have the biggest impact um, and long-term improvement. So what we're going to do now is we're going to go to a poll, which I believe Sarah is going to set up for everybody. Yep, hopefully you can see that. Yes, we can. So the question is... Can you think of a time where you've been going through lots of change, both at home and at work, and you've got to a point where you didn't think you could deal with any more change? How did you feel? Um, select the most prominent answer below. I'm sure after the last couple of years, most people are probably finding themselves in this position at some point. What are those results looking like, Sarah? Um, I was going to say one word, but that would give it away. Um, okay, we're nearly there. I'll, I'll share it. There's definitely an overwhelming winner. 
overwhelmed, uncomfortable, anxious, couldn't concentrate. Interestingly, no one said content or happy. So these are not abnormal results, but the question is, why do we feel like this? It's linked to our sense of control. So the more change we experience, the less in control we feel, and therefore the more discomfort we experience. Sorry, just trying to get my slide to go one ahead. There it is. So I'm just going to read out two quotes to you. The typical organisation today has undertaken five major firm-wide changes in the past three years. 75% expect to multiply the types of major change initiatives they will undertake in the next three years. So putting COVID and, and the havoc it's created in our lives aside, there's no wonder we and our colleagues are getting to a point where we're feeling a little bit out of control and don't feel like we can take on a lot more change. So these quotes are just related to firm-wide change. This isn't all the change happening within a region of a business, within a division, within an individual team. And then there's the personal stuff that you can put on top of that. So we're starting a new job every three year, years and four months. We move house roughly every five years. Our relationships are constantly changing. We're bringing children into our lives, pets into our lives. And the list just goes on and on. Now, all of that might not be making you feel that great, but I am getting somewhere with this. So you might have seen this before. This is the traditional change curve. It's all about recognising the stages someone goes through when they're experiencing and adapting to change. This is attributed to a psychiatrist called Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, and it was resulting from her work on personal transition in grief and bereavement recognising that major change can be very traumatic. So the greater the feeling of loss of control, the more likely you are to see anxiety, denial and resistance. And it's change management or the role of change managers that have a significant role to play in helping drive a sense of control. When we start putting things in place like communications and training, we start to drive that sense of control. And once people start to feel more in control, you're going to see things like acceptance, commitment, and potentially even advocacy. What the traditional change management approach doesn't recognise is that any one time an individual is likely to be going along multiple change curves. So if you're in a position when, with your, when you're dealing with more than one change, it's about the compound effect your sense of loss of control is heightened. Some people might think, oh, what's the point on trying to do any change management if everyone's going through such an extreme amount of change? But there is a good reason, because even if you can instill a little bit of control over just one element, it's going to make a difference. From an organisation perspective, an organisation can work towards delivering change in a more consistent manner so people know what to expect and what type of support they're going to get to help them feel in control. 
So when it comes to delivering change management, many changes are delivered with a focus on the needs of the project, just the project. They're not considering everything else that's going on. We try and flip this And we think about who our stakeholders are, what they're experiencing across the organisation and elsewhere, and then frame their change experience around that. I'll give you an example. So we once worked with a beverages company that were implementing a large technology system called SAP. And they were doing this at the same time that they were being acquired and taken over by another beverages company. When we commenced, it was a complete mess as the change experience was about equipping people to use the technology, completely ignoring the fact that some groups of people were distracted by an impending takeover that would no doubt result in things like a restructure, ways, um, changing ways to how they work on a day-to-day -day basis. So our client couldn't work out why the stakeholder group was so hard to engage and weren't particularly interested in this new technology system. All in all, it was a bit of a disaster and the program was put on hold. I'm sure there might be others listening in that have seen similar situations to this. So, so what? There are three key activities I'd like to talk you through that are must-dos when taking a stakeholder-centric approach. So the first is understand your audience. The second is understand the landscape. And the third is base your plan on the experience. So a detailed understanding of your stakeholders will help to create appropriate change management activities that cater to their particular needs. And understanding your audience is much more than splitting them into three or four rudimentary groups. I know there's a tendency to group them, say, group of executives, a group of managers and a group of employees. But it's about understanding more of that. It's the what, the who and the why. The what is about the functional layer. So this is the superficial information. This is things like a role somebody has, the level they are, um, the function they're in or potentially how, use, how often they use a system or a channel. The who is the demographic layer. This is understanding more about who they are and what type of behavioural response you're going to get. The who is important when people have options or discretion when it comes to the change. So examples of that are age, tenure, location, gender, for example. And then the why is the deep layer. This is the motivational layer. And this is import really important when you're trying to shift things such as attitudes and behaviours. So I'll give you an example. If you're considering cultural change and it's around diversity and inclusion, attacking that at a pure functional level might help you understand how you can change the process around, say, hiring and promoting people. But if you really want to address how people think about diversity and inclusion, just the functional understanding isn't going to be enough. You're going to need to understand more about the demographics, the person's background, and to understand how they think and feel. A leader could be the same as a frontline worker based on their backgrounds, beliefs, and attitudes. So you potentially put them in a group together, not split them into separate groups. 
Now, I'm not saying that you need to go and ask every audience member a heap of questions about the demographics and their background. I know this can get quite sensitive, but the aim is to try and get less than a superficial understanding of your audience and a sample is completely adequate. So you might be able to get some information from previous employee surveys that your company does. So there might be an employee engagement survey. You might be able to use HR data that's been depersonalized, so it can't be linked back to the individual, but it gives you some information about the audience. We, um, we worked with a client that were helping um, physically relocate 4,000 people from the CBD in Sydney to Parramatta. And we used postcodes to segment those groups and to better understand who would be impacted the most by the biggest commute. And we were able to plan our strategy around that. Sorry, jumped a bit, bit quickly. So this one is around understanding the landscape. So we're not going to be able to find out everything that our stakeholders have got going on at home, but we can work towards understanding what they have got going, what they've got going on at work. So many companies have enterprise change offices or program management offices that can provide a picture of all the initiatives that are planned in the medium term. If that's not the case or it's a smaller business, leaders should have a picture via their strategic and operational plans. Or sometimes it's a matter of going and interviewing some leaders to get the information straight out of their heads to be able to put it onto a picture. So once you have that picture of a landscape, you can select the best time to run a program or introduce interventions when there's actual space. So when people have the space to be able to get on board. You can also consider piggybacking off other things that are going on. So does your training need to be separate from other training that's being delivered around the same time? Perhaps there's a town hall that's already going to be run and you can use that to convey some of your messages. Now, the final activity is planning around the experience. So I think there's a tendency in change planning to think about what we want to say and do to people. So you think about the go live date, for example, and you think, oh, I want training to be rolled out a few weeks before that, or I know that we're having an offsite in June and therefore I'm going to do all of my communications there because I know that I'll have everyone in one place. Perhaps that sounds a bit familiar, but you need to think about the stakeholders, what outcome you want them to get to and what experience they're going to need to get there. And then once you've identified the experience, go back to what you're changing. Is it purely functional or is it behavioural or an emotional response that you need? And then drive activities that will drive that outcome. So you'll see on the screen, it's a journey and it's mapped against the timeline, but it's talking about each place we want the stakeholder group to get to over that journey. Remember, you can't use a basic intervention if you're trying to drive a real emotional response. So I'll give you another example. I've just finished a project with an online retailer. They were rolling out new technology that all staff would have to use to manage their personal data, apply for leave and access their pay slips. A large portion of the workforce were in a fulfillment centre and not able to have their 
their mobile phone or their device on them during the day. And the last thing they wanted to do was log on at the end of the day to do work admin. So we worked with representatives from the Fulfillment Centre to identify activities that they would engage in, they'd be interested in. And this was things like fashion shows, design competitions, sausage sizzles, getting professional headshots done that could be used on the system and doing influencer style communications. And this meant we could put the information we needed to convey in those forums and get them in a time and a place that suited in a format that they were likely to adopt. So I know I've covered quite a lot of information there. Um, it is all in a little bit more detail in an ebook that we've got on our website. So you'll see the link there at the top of the, um, the page. So it's called Stakeholder Centric Management and it's a free ebook. So download that if you'd like more detail on each of those things that I was talking about. And now we'll go to some questions. Right, thank you, Claire. Um... Just going to check out. There's no questions just yet. So Claire, while we're waiting for some questions, I've got a question for you without notice as well. Yeah. So um, if I was a HR manager or a safety manager and I've got some engagement surveys that have been done or I've used the health and safety index and I'm looking at all this data, wondering what should I do next, when would be the right time to get yourself or um, Levant involved? Look, in an absolute ideal world, we would be involved right up front at the beginning of a change. And the reason for that is because there's some steps that you can take very early on in the process to make sure your change is going to be as successful as possible. And one of those first things is about working with the leaders, so the people that are going to be driving that change, to make sure they are all aligned on what is going to change and why it's going to change, because if they're not aligned, they're not going to be able to bring the group of stakeholders along with them. So we can help them do that. We work on creating a um, what we call a case for change, so the why and a vision, and then that can be used through the whole change process. And then we start to get into more of the tactical, and that's when we would work with them to take the data that's available to craft out some what we call personas and that might be three it might be seven but they will be the representatives of the group that we're going to be trying to get to change so it does happen quite early on in the change process that you want to understand that audience um, the earlier you can understand the better because it's going to mean from day dot that you're rolling out communications or training or engagement activities that they're going to be interested in participating in. Yeah, great. I've just seen another question come through, which is um, quite an interesting one. So Sophie's asked, uh, what do you do if the leaders are not aligned? If they're not aligned. Okay. So there's a couple of, um, there's a couple of things here. So in some cases, working through the uh, process of defining a case for change and a vision can get them aligned. But in some cases, it's more than that. In some cases, we need to do leadership coaching. So we've got, um, we've got a leadership coach as part of our team that can work with a leadership team to um, work on some of the areas that 
they're not aligned on. There's usually something behind that, you know, whether there's past experiences, past relationships, past behaviours that are resulting in that misalignment. Sometimes it's about needing to learn more about change and um, why it's necessary and how it can um, you know, drive a better future. So we've also got some leadership training programs that we can help with that. So there's a couple of ways you can tackle it. Um, it doesn't happen overnight. So if you've got a leadership team that aren't aligned and, you know, perhaps they've not been particularly effective for a little while, it can take quite a bit of work to get them to that point. Yeah, absolutely. And you see that leadership coaching is becoming um, more relevant now and seeing it in more and more organisations, aren't we? Yeah, definitely. Um, where, yeah, and it's it's exciting that we are being brought in earlier and earlier because there was, you know, ten years ago we'd be brought into a change program just at the pointy end when things were, you know, even something might have been rolled out such as a technology system and then no one was using it and we'd be brought in and asked to try and get people to use it. But you know, that's a the horse is almost bolted by that point because there's a whole series of activities that have happened up until that point that we weren't involved in. So if we can be there at the start, it's, you know, it's going to be a much better outcome. Yeah. And unfortunately, sometimes the damage has been done, hasn't it? Um, yeah. And like I said earlier, at the start of this presentation, we've also seen through the benchmark data, through the index that the organisations that did plan early and did invest early are the ones that are getting the greater results, um, not just initial results, but the long-term results. So the organisations that are doing the health and safety index, you know, year one, then year two, benchmarking their data, are seeing much better results. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of questions. Uh, Terry, are you over where they come from? There's, uh, there's a few coming through. I think there's more statements at the moment. I can see. There's one from Hoven in the Q&A. Once the change is implemented, how do you sustain the change? Yeah, good question. Um, sustaining change is about... The, the key here is not letting the leaders drop everything to do with that change and move on to the next big shiny thing. So it's about reinforcing behaviours. It's about showing up and role modelling the new behaviour that it's, that's expected. It's also about looking for resistors in the business or amongst your stakeholder group and working with them to help them get on board because they may be role modeling behavior as well that other people will eventually um, copy. We encourage using something called a change network. Um, there's a couple of different names for them or change agents, but having people in the organization that are um, role modeling that behavior for you showing what the future looks like, um, communicating the key messages for you. So, um, yeah, it's the sustained piece is the tough bit. I think it can be sort of the fun and exciting rush up to go live beforehand, but once everything's gone live, that's when the hard work starts and you've got to keep working at it. Thanks, Claire. There's a couple other ones here. Um, M Price said that he's tired of HR being used first when WHS professionals 
have a significantly different lens on governance and regulatory compliance. So I think um, M Price, I'd tune into uh, the fourth webinar, which is HR versus WHS. I think that's going to be a really great one for you. Um, Sue's put a question in here. Can you please clarify how the fashion show and headshots solve the issue of workers feeling in their timesheets? So, sorry, I probably should have provided a little bit more detail. At those activities, they had iPads and um, devices that they could practice on. Um, and then they were going to be, that they would have to do them um, at the end of their shift, allocated a little bit of time, but it was about um, giving them the time to do the learning that they needed to do. Um, not having to do that learning after hours. So by giving, sort of meeting them at the sausage sizzle or at the fashion show or at the headshots and getting them to use the device at that time and guiding them through it. Something else that was set up was a, um, what we called a genius bar, the sort of Apple concept of having some people stationed at some computers in the lunch area. So people could go over and have a go um, at the time so when it was the you know two minutes at the end of the shift when they did you know get their device back and log a timesheet they knew exactly how to do it and they weren't um, you know they didn't need to do the training there and then. Yeah interesting let's see if we've got time for one more question if anyone's got a burning question on their mind. Any more that you're seeing come through Sarah? Um, well, there's one in the Q&A. Um, says, how do you manage change to effectively control psychosocial risk? You haven't linked your processes to what is a governing and auditable. Not sure I understand that question. Okay, someone said, what will get in your way when implementing change? What will get in the way? Lots of things. <laughs> Lots of things can get in the way. So, um, there, if you're in, if you're in government, it might be something like um, priorities shifting or a ministry of government change. Um, if you're not in government, it could be um, a new priority that's come down from the board, and another program has to go in the way. Um, it's leaders' attention being taken, um, and diverted somewhere else because there's been an emergency or there's been something in the newspaper or um, there's financial issues or things like that. So um, I think as change consultants, we're very used to being flexible and being able to change our plans quite quickly um, because yeah, things come up all the time. And then if you're working on something like a technology implementation, you know, the technology might not be working as it should be or not being set up as it should be so all of a sudden everything has to change so um yeah I think one of the biggest things is going through these programs you've got to be ready for change and you've got to be um sort of able to deal with change yourself if you're a change practitioner okay thank you Claire um there are so many links I've been putting in this chat. So one of them is to um, Levant Consulting um, Stakeholder-Centric Change eBook. Um, so if you want more information on that. The other one is to the FIFO um, download, which is a comparison of 45003 versus the model code practice. 
Um, there's also a link to this series of webinars if you haven't already um, registered for the next um, two that's coming up. And also we have another webinar tomorrow already <laughs> um, on developing an integrated mental health strategies, a panel discussion. So the link's there too. So thank you guys. That was just about spot on um, time-wise and also information-wise. <laughs> thank you. Thank Thanks, you. Thanks, Claire. Um, and I will just say quickly, it is being recorded, sending out a YouTube link later today, um, which you can share on. Thank you, everyone. Thanks for coming. There's lots of um, good feedback there. Thank you, Claire. Thank you. Bye. See ya.